0: All right, okay, I'm stranded here alone. Can you hear me reach your
1: You're listening to a podcast created by the Jack's Way Collective. We're a group of friends who like to talk about philosophy, fiction, and whatever else is on our minds. Thank you very much for listening. Now let's get to the show. I'm Yana
2: from Vancouver. I'm Gordon from Amsterdam. And I'm Oliver from Toronto. All right. What's up, guys? Uh, So today, Gordon is actually going to introduce our introductory segment. So take it away, my friend.
0: Yes. So every time when we have these introductory segments, we will talk about some interesting intellectual issues, hopefully, and some interesting discussions, maybe some uh, moral dilemmas or okay, I'm being too long winded. Let's get right into it. So today I have a question for you too. Do you think monogamy is still valid? What do you mean by valid? Do you think it is still something that we should strive for? And, um, or, or is it working in some sense? The, the reason uh, I posed this question was because uh, back in the days when I was in, in the first year in university, the, uh, I took this anthropology class and the teacher Um, and the professor, she gave this statistic saying that, oh, there's scientific research done about uh, people have this chemistry of love with each other, but only uh, it it would last for an average of four years. And then the chemistry would start to drop. And so if I think from a scientific, evolutionary, and biological aspect, if humans are hardwired to be like this, then wouldn't monogamy be something that is really kind of forced upon human beings, you know? All right. <clears throat> um, yeah,
2: so, so I guess, I guess uh, a stat to kind of support that is just uh, the regular divorce rate. I think it's like 50 something percent in North America. So obviously something is broken, whether or not that is uh monogamy, in itself, or something wider that is making monogamy not work, and some sort of external factor that is hurting monogamous relationships. Uh, I guess, I guess I would. My first thought is I read this book called Sex at Dawn, and um, you know, I fucking reference this book all the time because it's totally blown my mind. But basically, what he is doing in the book is railing against what he calls the standard narrative, which is basically. The way that we make conclusions about human nature, specifically to do with relationships, is drawn off of research exclusively done on chimpanzees um, who are, you know, monogamous and of course, very genetically similar to us, and they engage in all sorts of behaviors that we engage in. There's no question about that. But what is being ignored is the fact that there is another uh, ape that is equally as genetically similar to us, that is completely ignored. In the academic literature, and that is the bonobo. Bonobos actually engage in incredibly different sexual practices than chimpanzees do. Um, yet, there's no research informing humans um, based on that. So, bonobos they have much more sex leisurely. They have much more the women the women in the the bonobo tribes have much more sexual autonomy. They have they're much more promiscuous and. Um, are able to sleep with many different male chimps, or sorry, male bonobos, and also the the rituals around parenting are also very different as well. Where instead of you know a singular mother raising each uh, child, the bonobos uh, instead engage in a kind of communal practice where they all together take care of offspring, and they're actually um, some tribes that still exist today that engage in, I think it's called paternal parenting, where their idea of babies is that they're actually a collection of semen. So the women actually want to sleep with many different men um, for all of their best traits, and then they will kind of combine for the baby. So when it's actually born, um, the parenting is done by the mother and all of the different fathers who have contributed to that. So again, if it's just a very limited view to um say that we are strictly hardwired for uh monogamous relationships when there's a swath of conflicting evidence both in hunter gatherer tribes as well as
0: um evolution as well mm. Mm. but i'm i'm always very skeptical about these research because that there we are not bonobos or chimpanzees we're not primates and we're civilized human beings like thus our you know, thousands of years of culture do not turn us into something you would think of as higher. Is this interpretation like, <laughs> you, you know what I mean?
2: Yeah, it becomes a question of how much can we transcend our own biological history? Um, yeah. And so, yeah. given that they're they our ancestors. Of course, mm-hmm. And so, I guess it seems very difficult for us to transcend our biological histories when it comes to physical and physiological processes, things like the body parts that we have and the way that we see things like these are all a direct result of our biology, but why is it that things that occur in the mind or um, things that manifest as social norms, why are they, why do they have a more higher degree of separation from our ancestry? Because I know that there's a lot of resistance to this. People are like, people sometimes think that evolution stops at the neck and there's no sorts of biological history that will actually have anything to do with the way that we think and the human mind, which I guess I would probably disagree with. Like why, yeah, like why, why is it that we look to evolution to explain, you know, things like our body parts or the way that we, um, see things, but we don't look to evolution as a way to inform the way that we think.
0: Mm. Do you remember back in, uh, I think it was, Three thousand or thirty-one thousand with the um, what's his name with the really old dude, and we have to write that paper. Yeah, yeah, and then, oh babe, yes, babe Robert Babe, and then he was talking about how, uh, he thinks like strictly speaking, evolution theory was not scientific. Do you remember that example about how? It, no, what was because a, you cannot refute on? evolution theory. It's like uh, oh oh this oh yes he's talking about Karl Popper's definition of scientific theory. theory. Yes right. yes, bring up some memories. Mm-hmm. And I remember I, th- I think he called them um,
2: like just so stories, right? So you you pick a phenomena, whether that's like I don't know something like the human fingers, and then you you construct some sort of story that makes um, intuitive evolutionary sense, and you kind of plaster that onto um, why it is that. Some some sort of body part exists. So you are actually post hoc constructing a kind of narrative for why something like that exists, which is
0: uh, not disprovable. Mm, yeah, because you cannot reproduce that at all. Because we are what we are right now. Yeah, and it's also like, yeah, and it's not exactly
2: falsifiable either. Mm, hmm. Yeah. What do you think, Oliver? And so I guess I guess like that kind of notion um doesn't necessarily favor monogamy or um other forms of sexual relations but it basically just says that you can't really point to evolution uh strictly to justify whatever kind of sexual practices we engage in today. Yes, yes.
0: But um okay, let me give you another piece of information that really influenced my views on monogamy. So that is one, the, the, uh, exp- uh, this theory that I mentioned was one. And the other was, okay, so recently I got into this master's program and then I meet all these uh, different classmates from different cultural backgrounds and even age range. And I met this um, 30-year-old Israeli uh, lesbian journalist. <laughs> That's a lot of demographics. But uh, what, what she told me was um, from her own experience, 30 years of experience, and, you know, she, she's 30, she's well into the adult world. And what she could tell me is that 90% of the people cheats and guys and girls, you know, even statistics for both like gender neutral, everyone, 90%. And I'm like, Whoa, I, I was really shocked by this, you know, this statistics she pull out. Of course, this is nothing scientific, but you know, if, and I kind of agree with that because, you know, sometimes uh, I, I'm sure a lot of people have as well. You're you're with someone, but then you're also looking at like, you oh, you check out that girl you, you saw on the street. And, you know, does that count as uh, uh, some sort of, you know, it's not cheating, but you know what I mean, right? It's just this little moment of unfaithfulness. <laughs> and that makes me question, oh, hey, it's human nature. Like that. Oliver, what do you think? So,
1: I'm just thinking here. In the article, it talks about how like falling in love is this euphoric feeling. And then when you stay in love, it's the Oxycontin or endorphin, right? So, I'm just trying to think here. How would polygamy change the chemistry? Does it just allow you to Keep this euphoric mm. feeling
0: going oh see uh i think um another point the article mentioned but it was lower in the lower sections it talks about how although people are looking for other partners but they're monogamy in a way like because you you, you sort of like attach your desire to what's just like one ideal person and the explanation for that was what they call a love map which is uh, l- like how you match, uh, sorry, how you map out this object of desire, so to speak. And it is based on memory and pleasure, memories of pleasure, like you grow up and then you st- start identifying things that you like and don't like, and then this accumulates into like a certain uh, constellation in uh, of desire, so to speak. And so that you always um, meet that person that which which fits most of that criteria. And then you would think, whoa, that is like the one or something. This is what the article is trying to make the the point.
2: I guess one thing, just to pick pick up off of what you said, Oliver, I think that maybe the reason that monogamy still stands as the norm is because people immediately jump to something like polygamy as the only alternative with no sort of conception of any sort of spectrum between those two things, because there are certainly relationships that are, you know, you have a kind of central pairing, a a central monogamous pairing of two emotionally involved people. But again, like you said, you have these small acts of unfaithfulness where you, where these people walk by you and you're very attracted to them, but that's a very different sensation from the sensation of love that you might feel for your partner. So I think that there are tons of relationships today where you can still maintain that singular emotional partner, but you also have a kind of mutual agreement where, you know, you, you, you need that these, you need these cathartic moments and it's okay that it's totally understandable that sh- the other person can be attracted to other people as well. And so if you just take that as a given, then you guys can still stay together as a kind of team, but also kind of engage in more fleeting sexual activities to satiate those desires with other people while still maintaining that it does not need to devolve into something where you know one man has like eight wives um there is certainly some some sort of solutions in between and so it becomes a matter of of communication and problem solving um with your central partner if that makes sense
0: no i was just saying so you're saying there's 50 shades of gray in between these spectrums <laughs>
1: <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah, yeah. So again, that,
2: like your your relationship no longer becomes some sort of top down imposed idea of what it should be, but it instead becomes uh, very particularist and hyper specific to the kind of relationship that you're in. And you can construct um, whatever kind of dynamic with your partner that you want to. Um, and once you realize that you have this kind of freedom, then it's not that monogamy becomes invalid, but all sorts of different types of relationship uh, agreements all become
0: valid mm. at the same time see okay let, let me let me change change up the question a little bit what i am also uh, what i'm going to say is okay so in society you have all these narratives and this amount of work put into um, sustaining this idea of like uh, a soulmate or this yeah the, just to sustain this monogamy this structure but on the other hand, if it is, if human nature is really going against that, then, you know, there's a conflict between the two. You have, uh, we are, we are kind of told and we are reproducing this sort of narratives, but on the other hand, we act otherwise.
2: Yeah. And so why do you think that is the case? I know in, in Sex at Dawn, the reason, the, the argument that he makes for um, why monogamy is so prevalent is that it serves kind of wider power structures in society, that of private property and ownership and um, the kind of male-female power hierarchy as well, um, where the female has much less sexual autonomy, um, which is a kind of reflection of maybe a larger societal um, um, dynamic. So, I mean, maybe the reason that monogamy is this imposed norm is not specifically because Monogamy has been deemed the best system, but instead it serves wider, unrelated to sexual practices, wider purposes, unrelated to sexual practices. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it definitely (laughs) does make things more organized.
2: (laughs) Yeah. And of course it makes like things like the legal system much easier to deal with, right? The way that you, uh, you know, because you get some sort of tax
1: benefit by pairing up Mm -hmm. with a partner. Do you not? I think so. And then you can also, it also helps... In terms of organizing children right yeah yeah <laughs> that children belongs to and, and family stability yeah, is very that's important true.
2: for child rearing too so in a way uh, maybe it's some form of a, a more pragmatic reason one that just makes society function a little bit tidier and need, mm-hmm. more neatly
0: well but that is based on the assumption of the family as a unit right but now um i'm also thinking along the lines of the effects of neoliberalism where this no longer any sort of institution but the self and individual as an enterprise, the individual as a unit in this competitive market. And I, I also draw this connection to, uh, was it Bauman who, who wrote the book uh, Liquid Love? Seeing how uh, nowadays uh, relationships have less commitment and become more kind of freestyle, you know? And I think that there is a connection between our kind of this ideology or economic uh, uh, system that governs our thinking. And so that's, I guess, that's why I think that relationships need to
2: adapt and morph to the times in the societal context mm-hmm. that it lives in, right? Or else you're kind of putting a square object through a circular hole um, where you're relying on a very traditional and outdated form of relationships and trying to put that into practice in a ever-changing modern economic society. And so when you have these changes, such as you know the neoliberal revolution, if you want to call it that, um, other things have to change with that for better or for worse to kind of adapt to the times or else you're going to, because without any adaptation, you're just going to see huge failure rates because what worked in the past is no longer working because... The societal context that you are birthed Mm -hmm. into is no longer the same. I guess I have one final thought. This is going to be a bit messy because I'm not that well-versed in it. But I did listen to a podcast about um, Mm -hmm. Schopenhauer, philosopher, and his concept. The will? Yeah, yeah, (laughs) the will to life, right? And so, Oliver, maybe you can also chime in on this. But I remember in the podcast that he said that basically humans have – this kind of will to live, and um, we also have a will to live through children. so because of that this is the the reason that we search for partners in the first place. So during that searching, we are looking for someone who is um, going to complement our own selves or our own personalities, complement them in ways so that you can create the kind of ultimate offspring. Um, for yourself to live on as best as possible. So your search for a partner is actually a search for something that uh, will improve your own offspring as much as possible. And so because of that, Schopenhauer says that once the child is birthed and that you've succeeded in the will to live, the will to life, then you look at your partner in a totally different way because you realize that the reason that you paired up with them in the first place was not necessarily due to your love for them as a person, but for their utility in creating a the best possible offspring for you. So once the child is birthed, um, you end up with this partner who you might not really have anything in common with mm-hmm. post-birth. Does that make sense? And so that
0: might speak to the four-year four falling apart. Yeah. Well, that, uh, Foucault right. actually touched upon this. Uh, subject, and he called it biopolitics, right? And, and this is also in relation to neoliberalism, which is that, okay, if you want uh, your, your offspring to be, uh, of course, you, you want to maximize your gains in this competitive environment, right? And so if you want your off- offspring to be at least equally smart than you are, then you have to find a partner whose DNA or her genes that is equally smart as yours or even better. So in, in this you know, free market of exchange of bodies, then maybe you have to take your time to f- try out different options and to get better, if, if that relate to what you said. Yeah, which
2: I think so, yeah. And it kind, of, it kind of reduces the partner that you end up with to a mere means for you to maximize that utility. Right. Which is probably not for the best and probably why so many of these relationships last such a short amount of time after childbirth. Because if you have succeeded in this game of you no know, in the genetic market and you can succeed, then what reason is there to keep uh, the partner around after that? Oliver, what do you think?
1: I agree with what you guys are saying uh what came to mind was well how do you explain those relationships where you say why mm. is he with her or mm. why is she with him you know what i mean
0: oh so you're or maybe saying, that's just such uh, an anomaly people who have sort of diff- really uh there's a huge discrepancy in their standing uh, right or something like that yeah yeah
2: yeah i wonder if there's some sort of study that would i don't know map that like uh, whether the length of relationship is increased um, based on the level of equality in status between the two partners. Mm. Well,
0: uh, I, don't I don't know, but that. intuitively it makes so much sense. For example, if you're, if you're a housewife and your husband goes broke and then everything falls apart, your family goes down to shit, <laughs> of course you get frustrated and you, you, you want stability and you, you want someone else. Yeah.
2: Yeah. It's interesting. I don't know if you remember our medieval history class, but in it marriage is yeah, such an economic economically charged thing. It is basically an act of economic exchange all the between two families. Money Um precisely. And so it feels as if uh we've almost come full circle on that. Uh if you take what we said about yes, the whole neoliberal yes. genetic marketplace, um, as as uh, something that's true, and so it's just it's just weird that we've kind of gone through economic exchange, and then we've gone through this entire you know romanticized period, and now we are back to that form of economic exchange. Whether or not you believe that's where we're at or not um, is a different question. But I don't know what do you what do you guys personally think about non monogamy? Like, could you engage in something like that?
0: I
1: don't is care. Too personal for the podcast. <laughs> I've never. Uh... I've never experienced it yet. Um, Seems like it'd be cool, but I feel like I'd get just jealous or, you know what I mean? How about you? Yeah, I
2: mean, jealousy is a deeply Mm -hmm. embedded emotion in all of us, right? To overcome something like that, which I guess goes back to whether or not you can transcend your own biology, right? Because I'm not sure why emotion like jealousy exists. Probably something to do with keeping your partner safe from other harm, and so you don't want or uh, you want your own offspring to continue and not other people's offspring to live on. So um, I don't know. I, I just see, see this as a deeply, deeply embedded emotion that we feel. And it's very difficult to overcome. Mm. That's not to say that people can't overcome it. Yeah. Um, but I don't know if
1: if I could. Yes. Yeah. It comes back to that selfish will. Yeah. To almost to possess that partner or whatever, even though.
0: Yeah. It's like someone have something. And you Mm. don't, and you get jealous because of that discrepancy between yourself and the other. Yeah, so I
2: mean, I guess we really should have someone with some sort of personal experience to, I don't know, champion this. But intuitively, the way that I think about it, um, although I agree with it in theory, and I'm all for it, uh, I think it's a totally valid practice. um, And I don't think that it should be kind of demonized. And I think that we should open up our society to all forms of of um, relationship organization uh, on a personal level. I, I really I don't know. I don't I don't think so.
1: But yeah, because if it makes us happier, why not give it a shot? Yeah, why not give it a shot? It's perfectly right.
2: Like <laughs> we've been relying on this one method for uh, however long, and obviously it's got a, it's got a worse chance than a coin flip of working out. So
0: yeah. why not try and something I think else the out. most important thing is for those. People who are trying don't like put, um, like, don't look down on, on them or show some kind of contempt because they think differently from from you, you know. I, I feel like because nowadays people see something really different from what they believe in and then they just have such low tolerance for that. And this is actually hal- halting progress, or if you want to call it progress. Mm-hmm. And I also think that
2: you now every time you see uh, an example of some sort of different relationship organization fail, it's people are like, Oh, well, this is why the entire system does not work. But that's not, yeah. that's a false equivalence because every time we see a divorce, we're not drawing that same conclusion. Like, Oh, this is why monogamy doesn't work. Right. It doesn't really make any sense. There, for some reason, these, Different forms of relationship organization are held to such a higher standard than monogamy, which uh, I think is false. Uh, I'm all for a kind of hyper-specificity. You, you make your own whatever you and your partner work out. Um, and then it just becomes a, a matter of problem solving and communication. And um, now we are going to uh, turn the floor over to Oliver. He's going to tell us a little bit about the short story that we're reading today and why it is that we are reading it. Okay,
1: so for this episode, we decided to read John Cheever's The Swimmer. It was published in 1964 in The New Yorker. And so he was another one of those writers, similar to Flannery O'Connor, who worked post-World War II, American short story writer. And that's mainly why I chose John Cheever. I didn't know much about him, and uh, I... Right now, I'm kind of in this phase where I enjoy these American post-World War II authors. And so yeah, that's why I picked the story.
2: Perfect. Yeah, so, so I guess I'll just go through and just give a very brief overview or summary of the story itself. Again, we always recommend that people read it before they listen to the podcast. But just in case you forgot. Um, and then we'll get into your discussion. So yeah, my brief summary is basically that um, uh, this man, Ned, um. seems as if he's a kind of middle-aged family man, wakes up on a weekend in what seems like midsummer, and he decides to swim his way across the entire county back to his house. So basically the story follows him uh, in his a series of you know, excursions through people's backyard pools in this kind of uh, American suburb. And follows his journey through the entire county and his encounters with the people in their backyards as they drink by their pools. So the story follows him across the county and he meets, of course, a wide range of characters. And he basically goes through and becomes more and more fatigued as his journey goes on. And eventually he has some encounters with some people who bring up some repressed memories for Ned um, about his family. And um, by the end of the story, we realize that not everything is as it seems. Ned has actually um, repressed quite a few memories that were not revealed to us earlier in the story. Perhaps uh, he's not the heroic figure that he makes himself out to be at the beginning. And he actually has quite the troubled past. And only at the end of the story has he made that realization that, you know, his life has kind of gone on a bit of a downturn and taken a turn for the worse. And, um, yeah, basically throughout the entire story, it's, it's kind of, I guess you would call it surreal, um, where, where, you know, there's a kind of element of surrealism where not everything is, I don't know how to say it. There are some weird stuff that goes on. And there's some kind of realizations that happen in the character's mind that are reflected in the story. So for one example, Uh, It seems as if the story starts in the summertime, but you find out at the end that it's probably sometime much closer to late fall.
1: Um, Anything else to add? Yeah, it felt like a Charlie Kaufman movie where the world is just so strange for this character. Mm -hmm. Did you get that impression? I think so, yeah. Specifically,
2: I would say like Synecdoche, New York. Yeah, that's what I was feeling. And it's a new cut and you're in a totally fucking different environment. There's no indication that a time cut has happened or that a scenery change has happened. You just find yourself plopped within some new
0: environment. And I kind of got the same sensation reading this. Mm -hmm. And let me express my really admiration of this piece, especially about the surrealism. I think this is such a masterpiece because of this aesthetic choice it fits so well with the story. And this story is about a man in denial, right? It is like that meme you see on the internet where this dog sits in an apartment ablaze. <laughs> it's burning around and then it's just like, nah, it's all right, you know? And, and I connect with that meme as well as this story because it's, it's basically describing the same situation on a really kind of personal level because this really scares me. Because I, I sometimes I can find this happening on me, like like you you always live in this fantasy or you think things are going this way. The world is as you perceive it, but actually, you know when when you have that reality check or reality hits you, you're like, oh no, I've been living in my bubble all along. But but the scary thing is, like, how do you know you're living in a bubble or not? And I think the the aesthetic choice of surrealism really kind of uh, communicate this feeling to me, and and I totally feel that. Don't you guys also feel this creepiness in the story? Yeah, for sure. Like, especially on page
1: 781, when there's that shift between... Like, suddenly, Cheever, he says, he puts, like, he allows us to see... Nettie from our own perspective and then we see him he's like on the highway right
2: yeah and people are throwing cans at him and the weather is shittier than the kind of midsummer day that it was suggested earlier um, people are laughing at them at him as they drive by yeah so in a way it seems like just as the layers of this fantasy that Ned has constructed in his own mind are being peeled back throughout the story the layers of the actual environment of the outside of the story are also being peeled back where you literally transition from a beautiful poolside, sunny summer day to a stormy, cold, overcast, looks like late fall day as the story goes on. And as Ned's conception of his own situation gets worse and worse, so does um, the weather and environment around him. So it's a kind of pathetic Mm -hmm, fallacy mm -hmm. Um, there. Oh yeah, 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 sure. So I guess, I guess maybe we should just start off with a character read of Ned who wants to take this maybe just give a brief overview of what you think of Ned's character and how it shifts throughout the course
1: of the story. All right, feel free to build on this, but I interpreted Ned as an alcoholic, obviously, who views himself as he he talks about this as a legendary figure, a pilgrim, an explorer. Yeah, I thought that he cool. And it seems to me like Yeah. It seems to me like he views himself as the hot shit in the neighborhood, right? He gets invited to all, he gets invited to all these parties, but he turns them down. All the bartenders treat him well, except near the end.
2: He has no hesitations about crashing people's parties and showing up in their back lawns because he's so confident that they will accept, yeah, accept him being there.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, And even with Shirley Adams too. Yeah.
2: His mistress, right. So confident that, uh, uh, he has so much power over her and that she just, you know, wants him back so badly and he can just make himself at home at his old mistress's house. Um, yeah, he has such a such an elevated conception of himself and where it is that he stands, which I thought was uh, a stark contrast to to Julian from the last story, who instead is mm-hmm. you know much more much more down in the dumps and desolate. Whereas Ned is uh, idealistic. He's he's peppy. He's like, oh, I'm going to go on this huge journey. Yeah, again, of course, of course. Throughout the story, we realize Ned's naivete. Um, but you certainly see at the beginning how how highly he thinks of himself and how that slowly falls apart.
1: Is that a product of the alcohol or his
2: disposition or both? Uh, I mean, it could be both. What do you think, Gordon?
0: See, this is really uh, the, the reason for his kind of deterioration. It's not really explicitly told in the story. Uh, I think at this point, I think this story is like more like a general critique of like a social phenomenon or American society. So his character is only like a container, uh, and, and yeah, it is, it's almost like an everyone, everyone character. So maybe it is about this, uh, uh, the, how should I say it? It is this, uh, meaninglessness of the, the American suburban life. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and this character just um, stands for that.
2: Yeah, I I think you're right. and I guess one of the notes that I wrote down was how idealistic the post-World War II United States white picket fence suburb lifestyle is represented. I'm sure at the time people loved reading about that, but I think reading it with uh, a degree of separation from that kind of lifestyle. I kind of see it for what it is. And uh, it's not something that is a personal ideal for me. So yeah, although although there was some very interesting and literary descriptions of of the kind of American suburb, and of course, reflects the time that Cheever is writing in, you know, America's thriving post-World War II, reading it 50 years later, it, it kind of seems gross to me. Yeah. And I guess going back to what you said about how Ned has this idea in his head and he's kind of a vessel that represents any of us like who exists within this bubble. Like, how do you know whether or not you are in the same type of bubble or not? And, you know, how do you recognize whether or not Ned could be you in some form of your own life? And you realize that it's not until, I guess, other people point things out to you that you're able to make this realization It seems clear that Ned is unable to face what is actually happening around him on his own, but it's through his interactions with other people that brings up these repressed memories and makes him realize that he's
0: mm. in a kind of fucked up That's place. interesting because that is exactly what Oliver pointed out earlier about the perspective change or or um, what, what do you call it? There's a specific literary term in English that uh, uh, voice, was it voice or point of view or something like that? Um, this, this shift in perspective suddenly to like a third person perspective really kind of have the have this effect of a reality check almost and I, I wonder what what type of strategies or means in daily life we can kind of rely on f- to to do this reality check periodically so that we're not living in our own bubble all the time you know avoid yeah. <laughs> Avoid oh, definitely gin. avoid uh, the <laughs> alcohol and substances as represented in this story is something that contributes to the the opposite of the goal right yeah i guess i kind of got the sense of like there's
2: a kind of long-term view of ned's life where he has longer-term repression of things that he has kind of forgotten or repressed from his life that um he's not facing and i get that alcohol kind of reflects that on a much more short-term view you know, you drink to kind of forget your short-term problems and hopefully forget things the next morning. And so he's kind of engaging in a kind of running away from his own reality, both through a short-term escape in alcohol and from a long-term, more like day-to-day lifestyle. He's an escapist, uh, right? Hmm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, yeah, you're right about the, like, how is it that you can recognize take this sort of outside view of yourself, this sort of third person view of yourself and realize that you're in this kind of bubble. Um, I'm not sure about how you do that, but I do know that it seems like Ned, again, I've already said this, but it's through his interactions with other people. And I remember that there's some sort of quote from the Bible where it's like, you are unable to see, or you're able to see the twig in someone else's eye, but unable to see the log in your own. So in a way like it just that just kind of encapsulates the fact that it's so hard to be to reflect on your own self whereas it's much more easier
1: for you to point out flaws in other people this might be really simple but oh plot twist what if it's just him sobering up yeah maybe true, but he keeps drinking true. the
2: whole way through right every spot that he stops at he's like oh can i get a drink can i get a drink can i get a drink unless he's drinking he's been drinking reality serum or um, something like that you know <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> and spiking his fucking drink with whatever it is DMT or something I also got the impression that there was other families that were also that had also fallen on hard times did you guys get mm, that like the, the communist or, or, or the guy with the operation the, 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 like, well first off the Westerhazies because the way he describes their pool it's a like filthy pool mm. and then the Lindleys the grass is overgrown And the Welchers, their home is for sale, and the for sale sign's nailed on a tree. And then Nettie's family, their home is also for sale. It's empty. So I got the impression that there was other people in the community that were no longer rich or, you know what I mean?
0: Yeah, and there's some talk. Yeah, it's not all rich. Yeah,
2: there's there's, there's an offhand quote at one of the pool parties where I guess actually twice there's mention of, I'm pretty sure it was Ned who wanted to loan money from someone else, right? There's the one where Ned finds the woman whispering behind the other person's back saying like, oh, they came to me for $5,000. And then when also Ned visits his mistress, she's like, no, no, I'm not gonna give you any more money. Get out of here. Um, So my first realization was, or my first thought was maybe just Ned was, and maybe he got drunk and gambled all his money away or something like that. But maybe it's a product of a more widespread
1: economic issue. Yeah. And I, I also thought maybe this is a thing that Ned does, does regularly. Maybe he gets drunk and then just goes around the neighborhood yeah. asking for money. Yeah, so makes <laughs> him kind of a bum, right? <laughs> he is a bum.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, pretty much, right? Um, and so you see the, the disparity of how he sees himself as a legendary figure and then how he's uh, seen by other people as just like a, a schlubby-ass mm-hmm. fucking guy who party hops and asks people for money and takes their alcohol. And yeah, he's, he's kind of a shitty character.
0: (laughs) Mm. Oh, Hey guys, let me give you this. Let me give you this. Um, I I read that on Wikipedia, it says John Cheever originally, when he wrote this story, it was intended to be like a 150 page novel and he wanted to make this story like a parallel of the Greek narcissist story which is uh, this guy who stares into the, his reflection in the lake, and then he falls in, uh, in love with himself. And, and, and then he felt, Oh, because uh, I can never uh, 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 like really get with my own reflection. So there's no meaning in life. And then he kills himself. So, and, so this is one thing. The other thing is recently I've been reading, uh, reading some Sigmund Freud, right? And something he said is quite profound. Was about how um, uh, his he, how he teach us to think about the question of reality, and um, instead of talking about reality as sub- something like objective or subjective, he said reality is an obstacle, because he says everyone is um, narcissistic in a way, and uh, because they're narcissistic, they ha- they kind of generate this fantasy around them because. Fantasy can be auto erotic, which means you do not have to do anything, but you just like fantasize or like, you can just like touch your own body. And then that would generate pleasure because Freud is all about pleasure. Right. And so if you can not interact with anything outside of yourself and still generate pleasure, then this, you develop some kind of love for yourself and, and that becomes narcissism. But reality is when you have to solve an issue, uh, a problem, and what is a problem? A problem is what stops you from being pleasurable or what what stands in the way between you and a source of pleasure. So that reality is actually well, when you have to encounter a problem and you have to solve it, then that's your contact with reality. And I think back to this story, this, uh, uh, this guy, Nettie, he's just this extremely narcissistic dude and he lives in his own bubble And his bubble bursts or is about to collapse when he actually gets to meet different people and interact with them. And that's the entry point of, uh, of his reality. What do you think? Yeah,
2: I think that's very interesting because you can see the kind of, uh, micro holes being poked in that bubble throughout the story. Whereas at the start, he's, uh, acting alone and he has his own, journey in mind and he's idealized it and himself Um, but as he goes on he talks to other people and they start poking micro holes in his bubble when they mention things like his family and also the environment around him um, is also poking those holes specifically when he tries to cross that busy busy road right that is a direct confrontation with the reality around him and it is then where he feels extremely shitty, right? Where people are mocking him and throwing shit at him. So there's a kind of disillusionment um, that happens when his own subjective reality come or his own subjective quest for pleasure comes in contact with the actual reality around him. And of course that comes to a head when he is faced with his own house and his own reality makes itself clear to him at the end when his house is empty and his family is gone And so, yeah, like all of these things that he encounters, you're right, isn't it is a direct affront to what he initially uh, uh, set out to do through maximizing pleasure by just, you know, leisurely swimming
1: through everyone's pools. Just thinking here, I like what you guys have said so far. What did you guys think about the different kinds of pools? Because some of them have are like some of them have wells, some of them have filters and then When he goes to the public pool, he really has disgust for it.
2: Um, Yeah, I kind of saw an interesting through line here too, where his beginning pool, he talks about how it's it's beautiful and the pristine water. And he mentions that um, on page 777, so like the second page, there's a quote that says, to be embraced and sustained by the light green water was less a pleasure, it seemed, than the resumption of a natural condition, and he would have liked to swim without trunks. So I get this sense that um, he wants to be like fully naked within the water around him, and that is the beginning of his journey. But as he goes on through um, out through all of these different pools, and, uh, it seems like um, each pool is becoming more dense, more industrialized, or uh, civilized, which kind of reaches the apex when he gets to the public pool. And it's then where that public pool is a kind of reflection of, I don't know, maybe this is too much of a leap, but it's the public pool that's a reflection of the, the civilization at its apex. It's dense, it's very busy. Um, um he talks about the artificiality of the environment that he's swimming in, filled with chlorine and suntan oil. There's a kind of loss of freedom uh, as reflected by the lifeguards yelling at him and his need for an identification card. So I saw this kind of journey away from the act of swimming in its most natural naked state towards um one that's much more artificial, condensed and uh, anxiety ridden at the public pool. So I kind of got this through line of the this, you know civilizational progress being reflected in these pools. And also, just to maybe add to that as well, there are multiple times where he talks about the city as a dark cloud, um both at the beginning where you can see it on the horizon. And then later on, he also mentions, the city as a kind of dark, uh, uh, I don't have a quote for it, but it's just, it's just a you know an, a looming dark cloud above him. And so I see there's just a kind of through line of the more industrialized the pools, the farther away he is um, moving away, the farther away he's getting from his natural state. What do you think about that? Mm.
0: I think you have made a very good point there. That's for sure.
1: Hmm. Um, he also mentions this airplane in the sky where the pilot's laughing
0: i don't know what it is but it seems to me just it is a uh, this this sort of symbol or this imagery of just like you know flying soaring to the sky this pure happiness and euphoria you know this freedom everything is all right
1: i just wonder if we could compare that to the public swimming pool and the whole nature. Yeah, because... Um, freedom aspect. Yeah, for me, just the, the transition
2: from like swimming in its most naked natural state towards, um, you know, the, again, the, again, you could think of a kind of, what kind of society reflects that an initial state of nature and then what kind of society reflects mm. the public pool w- environment. Would you
0: think the pilot is um, part of the pathetic fallacy then? If we categorize the pilot and the rainstorm, as just like this general description of the sky and what what the sky is represents in parallel with the pool, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's definitely like the
2: plane could be a kind of representation of um, industrialization. Yeah. Uh,
1: wow, I should have maybe got some more quotes. Go on. Also, what about the Halderens? They're mm-hmm. the family that, they're the elderly couple that is, People think they're communists, and they swim naked in their pool, and their pool is um, doesn't have a filter what or a does pump. That mean? It's, uh, fed yeah, by a brook.
2: A brook is a kind of like stream, I think, right?
0: Oh, so it's. I see. So it's, it's stagnant like a natural
2: stream. In a water. way, their pool. I think so. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, and so I guess like the Hallorans, um, they are seen as revolting against the more public pool style, uh, more quote unquote civilized way of swimming by instead revolting um, because it says their uncompromising zeal for reform. Um, That is reflected by their nakedness. They don't wear bathing suits and also they are not using the kind of chlorine pumps in their pool. And like you said, their pool is being fed into by a natural river as well. So the communists who are seen as outcasts from the uh, agreed upon idea of American society their pool is also the kind of outcast pool um, compared to all of the other ones I don't know if there's anything to that or not because it even talks about her taking beach leaves out of the water with a scoop so like like their pool is the least clean no filters, no pumps.
0: Just a commentary on political um, systems again, it, here. It's
2: more swimming in its natural state. John Cheever trying to be sneaky, eh?
0: <laughs> Those
2: commies. <laughs> oh, Christ, man. I don't know if he's getting that deep or not, but...
1: Even just <laughs> <laughs> So does Ned just long to... That's his ideal. Be in some sort of natural...
2: I mean, maybe, but his character—free state or something? Yeah, yeah, but his character doesn't like the like the, the, he, his character doesn't necessarily
1: line up with that, though. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Or does he just have
0: disgust for the the poor people who have to swim in the public I think, pools? I, I, I think you're. I think you're onto something about how he. Desires a certain degree of chaos in his life, or something like that. Is like I, I want to be wild. I want to be free. I don't want to be like anyone else. Something like that. But, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh yeah, and he's sliding down the yeah, like, the bell, like Aphrodite,
1: <laughs> right? in the beginning,
0: the Greek god. So.
2: I got the sense, although this is going to be not exact, but I got the sense, of course, that there was maybe a kind of hero's journey going on here, Um, but a very, an odyssey, a kind of Joseph Campbell. Yeah,
1: it's definitely um, an odyssey.
2: um, Encapsulation here, but it's a very perverted one because the hero's journey is definitely not done by a hero. And instead, it is the journey that succeeds in... Not in the hero's triumph, but instead in the hero's disillusionment with his self. Um, And so I always remember a T.S. Eliot quote that is related to the hero's journey. It says, we shall not cease from exploration. And at the end of all our exploring will be to arrive where we started and know the place for the first time. So normally that's a kind of uh, sign of triumph. But here... Uh, Ned does not cease from his exploration and at the end of his exploration arrives where he started that is his own house and he knows it for the first time so it is only once he sees his house um, empty Mm. and his family is gone it is only then that he can truly see what has happened to him and that is when he makes the realization that he fucked up right but it is only after he has gone through this journey that he is able to realize that and rid himself of this
0: uh constructed reality he has made for himself Hmm. Then that's not such a bad thing right because he yeah he got like a, a meaningful transformation and this is what the hero's journey is about You have a goal. Of course, but that hinges on whether...
2: Sorry, go on. No, no, no. You go, you go, you go. Oh, I was just going to say, like that hinges on whether or not you interpret the ending uh, as him having that realization.
1: Yeah, I interpret it as he'll just go back and the the cycle will repeat because he has such bad memory.
2: Yeah, the ending was left a bit ambiguous. Um, If he does make that realization, then yeah, maybe the story does reflect a... A kind of personal transformation and the hero's journey is reflected here but if he does not realize and he's still living in this kind of denial then maybe not what did you guys think of the ending because i know it says that um he was so stupefied with exhaustion that his triumph seemed vague
0: so again does he realize what's going on well because the structure here is really strange because the goal has changed since the beginning in the beginning, he just wanted to do this county swim, and in the end, it seems that he has achieved his goal. But there is, seems to be another layer of goal of a goal that we now, as interpreters, see as you know, uh, realizing uh, the the reality, the hardships of reality, or something like that. Yeah, uh, I agree. But does but
2: does Ned realize that too? Do you think? Hmm. I think it's
0: left completely ambiguous, but yeah, yeah, and, and I don't even—I don't think this is the point of the story. Mm-hmm.
2: I guess it's a kind of similar ending to the Flannery O'Connor, where uh, uh, we we talked about last time, like whether or not Julian is able to make a kind of realization of where he went wrong and where his what his initial goal was, and when he finally reached that goal, is it actually what he wanted at the end of the day? same kind of thing here. Ned's initial goal of just swimming across the county, like you said, turns into something much more broad and wide. It is unclear whether or not he will take what he has learned um, and put it into practice, or if he has
0: learned anything at all. But it's clear to us as interpreters, you're right. Yeah, then it seems that the character has has transcended into being more than a character in a sense. Okay, but that's that's not quite relevant.
1: I like to think of it as the character is super flawed and he never really changes just like most people in
0: life. Yeah. That's dark, man. I can agree. I can agree with that. (laughs) It's hard, man. Change is hard. Yeah. Yeah.
2: I mean, I would not be surprised if, you know, he, he's fucked up. He's very drunk and he shows up at his own house and it's dark and, he wakes up again the next day and grabs another whiskey, right? And repeats the vicious cycle, and maybe he doesn't learn anything. But from us taking the outside view and seeing that, maybe we're able to make the realizations that Ned can't. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Definitely.
1: Well, I got no more notes. What do you guys think? Got anything else? I don't have much either. Just, this, just, this thought came to mind too. It seems like he's almost critiquing the suburbs too. how – It's really superficial. We don't actually care about our neighbors. We're just interested in hanging out with them for the sake Mm -hmm, of their mm -hmm. status.
0: Yeah, it is. um, It he describes the suburbs as so sunny and happy and free, but underneath, under the surface, what's really going on is this, um, like the fragility of relationships, and also this really like harsh and strict social hierarchy which is reflected in the way he deals with different people. Yeah. And there's one
2: mention of the, uh, like how ingrained this is where it's even the bartenders are keeping track of this kind of social stratification yeah. where, um, because Ned has blown off this one woman's party so many times, uh, the bartender remembers that and serves him in a, in a kind of shitty way, I guess, because he's like, he's, you know, he's done a slight against the status of the person who's hosting the party. Yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess uh, there there's such a wide range of backyards here, too. Um, but again, they all do kind of follow the same theme. Like they're all having the same kind of backyard party and they're all drinking, engaging in ostensibly the same behavior with slight variations in the whatever is in their backyard. But yeah, they're all kind of upper class, mostly. They'll have pools in the first place, which suggest a certain level of economic prosperity.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not sure where I'm going with this. Yeah. Do you remember um, Selma's class on Hollywood about how in yeah. Hollywood films, the pool always represents the American dream? Because mm-hmm. uh, having a pool, especially in California, symbolizes a certain amount of wealth and this enjoyment under the Californian sun, the swimming in the cool water you know? <laughs> yeah, you're right. Yeah. And so, yeah, I guess,
2: I guess I never got the sense, but maybe looking back, it, it, how critical is Cheever of this kind of lifestyle? Because I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm probably maybe a little bit critical of just, you know, stereotypical white American suburb, but um, how, what kind of approach do you think Cheever is making, writing this in
0: the kind of height of this era of the American dream? I think, yeah, he's, he's having that really classic critique of the American dream being a pipe dream and it is meaningless in the end, like that dwarf who uh, chased the bucket at the end of the rainbow, the bucket of gold <laughs> at the end of the rainbow and in the end he finds nothing, which is kind of reflected in this story as well.
2: Yeah, and I guess he's concerning himself so much with the parties he's attending and the pools he's going to, uh yet look at what he's forgetting and that is his his wife and his children and his family and their well-being so maybe his uh uh what he thinks is important
1: is totally misaligned maybe it's not until he's no longer a part of this social status like that's when he
0: realizes how bs it all is hmm when he's no longer on the top what's interesting about oliver's comment is the the element of properties or like you know very materialistic ownership it's like once you have nothing then you're out of the system and then you wake up and so is is this you know your existence or something similar is it entirely based on your material possession
2: obviously we don't think so yeah i guess i guess it's a good way to highlight that um because i I don't know maybe like uh to put a kind of positive spin on Ned, he might not have the pool anymore, but he can still swim, right? And he can still take enjoyment out of the act of swimming. Um, so that kind of goes into that. Like the value is not from the material possession of the pool, but the value is from the activity you can engage in, engage in and that is uh, mm. swimming. That's a nice uptake. Yeah. I mean, uh, I hate to give Ned some he doesn't sort of positive spin it. here, but um, at least he's got that. Like, at least he can do something for uh, its intrinsic value, at least at the beginning. Um, But other than that, he doesn't have many other saving qualities. 10 points for creativity and knowing how to chill. (laughs) Oh, man. How did you guys like the,
1: the story just as a story? I enjoyed it. It, uh, to me, it flowed very well. Oh, it (laughs) flowed. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I'm a bit (laughs) on the news. Yeah. Got it. Jump right in. (laughs) Nice, nice. Love it. (laughs) Love it. Um,
2: yeah, I thought, (laughs) um, how are you guys? I thought the writing was much more interesting and, uh, uh, dynamic than the O'Connor piece. Uh, immediately I was, um, uh, captured by the writing itself. It's, it floats so, nice. it floats so fucking nicely. Jesus, I can't get away from the water. The water cliches now. Oh my God. Um, but yeah, I mean, as as just a work of prose, I thought it was way better than the flannery piece. Mm.
0: Well, as for me, like I said, I, I really like the surrealist aesthetic, which really fits to the content of the story. And I do not have this... This sort of like, oh, this is so great. This moment until maybe like a few hours after reading the story and thinking about it. Because I I, I do not really immediately catch that. But later on, uh, I I was quite impressed. Sweet. Yeah, final
1: thoughts? or do you want to end it there? Let's have some final thoughts. Would you guys, after reading Cheever, do you think you guys would revisit his other stories? Not necessarily for the podcast, but for his personal... Yeah, personally, Reading. yeah, uh, I really
2: liked. I'm uh, much more likely to revisit Cheever than O'Connor, to be honest. Yeah, I, I like I like his kind of like Gordon said, his ability to, toe the line between, uh, reality and um, unreality or the surreal, uh, which was very interesting. And yeah, like I said, just his his pure writing as well was it just it was just such, an interesting. It, it just immediately captured me in a way that the O'Connor piece did not i think that has to do with the language and the way that the sentences are structured yeah. um yeah it was much more literary to me so yeah i would totally read another piece well me him. too Oh, fuck yeah <laughs> fuck yeah put him in the uh in the backlog then <laughs> well done cheever <laughs> you <did> sold well. <laughs> All right so uh yeah that concludes our discussion of uh, the swimmer by john cheever Thanks so much for joining us, the uh, way Collective. We will be back next week. Uh, We're not exactly sure what it is we're going to be reading. So that will be a surprise when we upload. Um, But yeah, thanks so much for joining me today, Oliver and Gordon. And we will be back.